Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by MC Sumgala. In late 2020, MC moved law firms to become the first appellate practice chair at an AmLaw 150 firm, hiring and training new associates virtually. MC has been described as a phenomenal writer, having published two non-legal books through her own legal press, imprinted and winning an independent publishing award for an earlier book. Mary recently launched the Mother's Thoughts for the Day website, a merchandise site associated with the book. During the pandemic, Mary also founded an online appellate Law Summer Academy with the Orange County Bar Association to provide law students with practical knowledge and experience. So a very, very big welcome, MC. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And before we dive into all of your amazing achievements and legal experiences to date, we must start with our customary icebreaker question on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the reality TV series Suits? Okay, so Rob, I knew about the Suits question. I was um, you're starting off getting me nervous here because I, in fact, have never seen Suits. I got rid of my TV like 10 years ago and I just really haven't regularly watched programs. But from what I can see, uh, it does not look very realistic. I wish we all dressed as glamorously and uh, other things from what I've seen from the trailers. So I would rate it pretty low on the reality part. I would say... Also, just as a side note, when I was a newer lawyer, I did a column for our legal newspaper where I rated the practice uh, law for uh, law series for its uh, sort of reality check to that series every week. So I actually had to watch it, do a column and compare what happened on that show with what would have really happened in real life. There we go. Well, that's super, super interesting. So based on that, I think we're going to give it a sort of below five and move on. And we must move on because there's a lot we need to talk about today. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your family background and and upbringing. Uh, Sure. So I largely grew up in California, Uh, lived in the Midwest for a little bit, but most almost my entire life in California. Um, And uh, I live now in Orange County, California, where I uh, went to high school. My parents also still live here. So I have um, two, two parents, no lawyer in the family. So there is no sense where the idea that I had when I was very young that I wanted to be a lawyer. We don't know where that came from. But um, so no lawyers. My dad is in, was in aerospace and in finance. So much more uh, black and white than I think we deal with in the law. And uh, I went to Stanford undergrad and uh, UCLA for law school. And then I um, clerked for two different federal judges uh, before going into practice. There we go. So you didn't have a a legal family background per se. So when did that initial spark to or intrigue to wishing to become a lawyer come about? Well, I decided to become a lawyer, I think, when I was about eight and I'd given it deep thought. You know, everybody asks you when you're little, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would always tell people that I hadn't decided I was still reviewing the options and I would let them know. 
Uh, I suppose that was a hint that perhaps I might be a lawyer, but you know, people look at me funny and go, well, we just want to know a cute little answer kid. But uh, my first thought of what I wanted to do actually was that I wanted to be a writer, specifically a poet. And then after thinking that that is what I wanted to do, I had an image of me starving in a garret. I wasn't sure what a garret was, but I was pretty sure I didn't want to starve. So I thought maybe I should turn directions to a career that would be self-sustaining. And, uh, and I came to decide on the law. And as it turns out, the kind of law I practice, appellate law, where we're largely writing briefs to judges and then having discussions, conversations with them about the case, that's the closest you can get to pure writing within the law. So I feel like eventually I merged those two interests into my practice. Yeah, and I, I, I love that. And you've not been afraid of of making some uh, great connections and networks and, and moves. And, and on that note, last year, you made the move from Hayes and Boone, I believe, to Buckholter as the firm's first appellate practice chair. So what was that like? And what have you found to be the biggest challenges, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I would say don't, don't try this at home, ladies and gentlemen. It is definitely a <laughs> It's definitely a challenge to move law firms during the pandemic because it's difficult to integrate in the same way. You have to be much more intentional about integrating into the team, getting familiar with the team, their strengths and managing and leading and working with them is, is has many more challenges, especially when they're spread out um, and you can't go visit them. So you have to be more creative. And um, but it was you know, really cool opportunity. The practice was founded 30 years ago uh, by a former California Supreme Court justice when he retired from the bench. So it has a very, you know, deep original pedigree. And then after that, the practices continued on without a leader for 30 years. So I'm very excited to, to have taken the reins and, and worked with that and starting to um, as you mentioned in the beginning, to, to think about longevity of training the next generation of lawyers, both within the firm and outside the firm. And you know, how can we do that, especially during this time when things, again, are more disjointed because of uh, COVID and various lockdowns and restrictions on travel? Yeah, and absolutely. And we're going we're gonna to talk a bit more about that because, as, as you mentioned, you, you've taken over the current firm's appellate practice in the middle of this pandemic. So, you know, how has that been in terms of handling cases remotely? And how did you find the process of hiring and training new associates virtually? Yes. Okay. So that's two part question. So the first part question would be, how is our practice really adapted to the, to the environment? And I think that with appellate law, we, we kept moving um, very similarly to how we have before because we're, we're largely just filing briefs and those get filed the same way, whether um, you know electronically. Uh, the difference is in the um, oral arguments. So all of the oral arguments are remote, whether it's by Zoom or telephone or some other method, um, video. So video or audio. And that has been not only an adjustment, but I think that Immediately, and I think in the longer run, that will have a, it has an impact on how you present argument. It isn't just 
a change in venue or how you're doing it, the whole format of the argument changes a little bit, becomes more formal, less conversational. So that's been the biggest adjustment in uh, appellate practice overall, is adjusting to the remote arguments. And then, um, yeah, in terms of hiring and training, so hiring, you know, Zoom interviews for sure of people. And when I could, I would meet them in person, outside, you know, distanced and all of that. Uh, I think it's helpful to see people in person if you can. And in terms of candidates, really got a lot of good candidates from uh, judges who recommended people who had externed or clerked for them. And that was my kind of workaround of getting a good pool, a good initial pool of candidates was to ask the judges uh, for their recommendations. I, I love that. And I, I liken that to what I, I tend to speak to people around is, is working warm. Who do you know in your network who can introduce you to someone who you perhaps do not know outside of your network? So that's a, that's a great strategy that's obviously been very successful for you. So you're also an award-winning writer. So did you always have a passion for writing? Uh, yes. Well, as I said, I, I'd originally thought I would be a poet and then um, decided maybe I'd just write for myself. And then, um, and then I dabbled a few years ago in taking some creative writing classes, thinking that, you know, maybe this would be something, short story writing or something like that, that I would want to do to transition out of practice at some point. Uh, but, you know, everybody has their sort of midlife or whatever view of should I have taken another path? And I can confirm that my classes in creative writing further affirmed that I took the right path, that probably... <laughs> Um, not a full-time writer, in part because I think being a writer is very uh, isolating and you have to be a different person to, to be a writer. And I, I really like people and writing in a way that has a purpose. I mean, that's what we do as appellate lawyers. We write to achieve a particular result or to make a change in the law. And so there's always a connection with what you're writing directly with an impact in the real world. And that isn't the same thing with creative writing. So I could do it, but I don't know that I like the person I'd be if I did it all the time. So I decided, okay, not all the time. But then, um, but then I started this um, independent publishing press and started doing books anyway, not, not, uh, not deep legal books, but uh, really um, it's kind of inspirational gift books for, for people and particularly for, for families and the mother's thoughts for the day series. And um, yeah, I would say that doing that publishing and the merchandise and everything, the whole brand around it has been an amazing help or, you know, adjunct to being a lawyer and to, do, to doing other kinds of business as well. I've learned a lot from doing that, more sensitive to my clients about what things they're, they're dealing with on a business level. And also... I really did that whole project on instinct because I felt that the world needed some positivity amidst turmoil and that this would be something that would, even if it just touched a few people, would be worth doing because it would be a positive contribution to the world. I had no idea who those people would be. I had no idea how the book would be received, but I just had a feeling that it was something that should be done. So... I went with it and figured it out. And I think as a result of that, 
I kind of go with my gut more in my law practice too, that I don't ignore those feelings when I have them. Yeah, and I, I love that. And that kind of answers one of the questions I was I was going to mention around, you mentioned there your first sort of non-legal book was Mother's Thoughts for the Day, which I believe was released in 2019. And you've kind of touched on it there. And, and sort of it's quite a, a bold mood, as you like, to write a book that wasn't related to the law. So is there anything else you would, you would share a, a, around that? Yes. So, well, I mean, we're, we're more than just lawyers, right? We're people and we can contribute to the world in other ways. And for me, it was tied to the law a little bit in, in that the book is based on letters that my mother has sent me every day since I started practicing law. So every day from the day I started law practice, even when I was in law school, she would mail me a letter. Now she would text me but she would mail me a letter with some quote or something positive for the day so that when I was in the office alongside all the deposition notices and all the other stuff I would get, I, every day I would get a letter in the mail from my mom with some kind of positive thing for the day. And uh, so that's, you know, over 25 years of that, which was remarkably persistent of her to do, but it really did make a difference. And I thought maybe there are others, especially young women lawyers who don't have that kind of encouragement and having, you know, some of these notes in a curated way might encourage them during the day. And, um, and that's in fact been the case. That's what I've heard from a lot of professional women and also uh, for families that uh, mothers and children will, you know, read parts of the book at bedtime or to start the day, or they'll write out some of the quotes from the book or some of the comments in the book into little notes in the lunch pail kind of thing for their kids. And uh, so it's just been really neat that it's allowed for more family, more families to connect in addition to ours and also has encouraged you know, women to carry on if they're having a rough day um, in business or, or in the law. Yeah, and I love that. And the takeaway from that for me is what I tend to tell you to a lot of people is be a human first, and then you can be your profession. So human, then a lawyer. And so that's just absolutely, I love everything that you were saying there, MC. Um, okay, we mentioned earlier, during the summer, you founded the Online Appellate Law Summer Academy for law students and new graduates. So can you tell us why you decided to do this and what that particular program consists of? Sure. So it grew out of two things. One thing in particular, well, honestly, the power of LinkedIn, I will say this. So on LinkedIn, early in the summer, while we were all still fully in lockdown, the North Carolina Court of Appeals posted that they were turning their externship program into an online training academy for appellate law and that, you know, they would open that up to other law students who weren't in the externship program. And I thought this seemed like a great thing because there were a lot of students either who were waiting to take the bar and had to delay it or, uh, or couldn't do their summer programs. And so they, they needed to do something productive during that summertime and to continue to learn. And uh, they couldn't do it by going to an ordinary bar program because they weren't happening. So based on the North Carolina program and the fact that our own Orange County Bar Association here in, in um, California 
was doing a lot of online programming like this anyway and hadn't done anything though for law students or new graduates, uh, we decided to do this uh, appellate law online academy. And it was four sessions. At the end of it, the students got a certificate showing that they had done this and there were really great judges and experienced practitioners covering everything from brief writing to oral argument. And even we had a session on jobs and appellate law. Like if you want to be an appellate lawyer, where would you go and how would you go about, you know, looking for that job and what settings could you practice in everything from being a research attorney for a judge to practicing in government or in private firms. So, so we did that and we had hundreds of students uh, take that program. And, uh, and so as a result, we're continuing to do some programming during the year, and then we're, we're going to do another academy um, next summer with a different coverage. And honestly, doing that online academy led me to think about other ways that we can continue to grow the pipeline of lawyers who want to do appellate work, because there aren't a lot of jobs in that area, and it can be a hard, a difficult on-ramp to get onto if you don't have a federal clerkship or you want to get a federal clerkship with a judge, which is very competitive, you know, is there some other way if someone thinks they have an interest that, that they can get some training in it? When I came to Bow Culture, we founded the Kaufman um, Appellate Fellowship and we have our first fellow that started in the fall and that's designed for a one to two year program for either a new law school graduate or someone with a trial court clerkship who wants to go on to appellate clerkship. And we um, work with them and train them and give them opportunities in appellate law. And then we help them, you know, off ramp to a clerkship. And if they'd like to come back, they can come back, you know, and, and we all want everyone to come back, then they can possibly also leverage that fellowship into a full time position with the firm. Yeah. And that sounds super, super helpful. And I'm, I'm glad that you've kind of taken that initiative and it's thriving. You are deeply committed to pro bono work as well. I believe you've served as counsel of record in one or more pro bono appeals each year for over 20 years, I believe, before the US Supreme Court and international courts, just to name a few. So as someone who's clearly so passionate about pro bono work, why do you think um, there is a need for this now, perhaps more than ever as a result of the current climate? Yes, there are uh, additional needs, certainly now. For me, pro bono work is forever intertwined with my interest in appellate practice. My first case, my first brief that I worked on when I was quite young was an amicus brief in the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's what made me realize that I wanted to do appellate work. So I guess in some way, I feel like by continuing to do that, I'm continually sort of honoring the part of the practice that that showed me that this is what I wanted to do. And also, it's really part of my upbringing. We just kind of, I was taught that when you have something to give, you you share it. So so I have some skills and some time to give. So, so that's what I've done. And it's really satisfying because I think, especially at the appellate level, what we can make a really big difference uh, with one case. You know, if it's at the U.S. Supreme Court or the International Human Rights Court, we can make law that not only helps the people in this case, but helps a lot of other people. So there's a lot of efficiencies built into doing pro bono appellate work that isn't the same 
when you're doing one person at a time in the uh, in the trial courts. So there's a really big upside to doing that work in terms of in terms of the impact. And uh, you know, one case that I worked on uh, was in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in Costa Rica, a case against Mexico, uh, where I represented Amnesty International and hundreds of other law professors and human rights organizations. And the question was the first interpretation of a women's rights treaty really in the world in terms of protecting women and girls from, um, from violence. And the case involved decades of unsolved killings and assaults of women and girls in Ciudad Juarez, which had gone you know, unprosecuted for years. So the, when the decision came out, it was, what, it was the first decision interpreting a human rights treaty or, or a women's rights treaty and a human rights treaty in that context. And it's been very influential in other human rights courts, I- including in Europe. Brilliant. And thank you so much for, for sharing that. That's really insightful. So very appreciated. And we have to move on because you are regularly ranked as one of the top women lawyers recognized as one of California's top women lawyers, according to the Daily Journal, for 10 years running and winning the Distinguished Service Award from the Women's Lawyers Association of Los Angeles. So I've got a very important question. How do you do it? (laughs) Well, not all at once, usually. Um, You know, sequentially, I think that if you enjoy what you're doing, then then you're energized by it and and you keep you keep going. And I think always the question is, you know, how how can I serve or who can I serve at this point, whether it's the community, whether it's your clients or whether it's the larger good. Brilliant. Yeah. And I love that. And I love how humble you are as well in your your, your response. And you're, you're no stranger to the media either. Um, you're a highly recognized public speaker uh, featuring as a guest on Broomberg Law, Jeremy Richards, I believe, Lawpreneur, if I'm getting that right, podcast. So tell our listeners um, what sort of things you tend to get interviewed for um, so they can have a bit of an idea. Oh, sure. So, you know, Jeremy interviewed me for business development questions. And Bloomberg Law interviewed me previously for about the U.S. Supreme Court cases involving Holocaust art recovery, because I have worked on a few of those cases, and in fact, filed a cert petition myself in another case last year. And uh, actually, they're going to have me back on. The decisions just occurred. So I'll be back on their podcast um, next week talking about the decisions. So women in the law and also as I said, more, more generally sort of expertise on appellate cases and appellate strategy. Brilliant. And as we look to conclude, MC, I, I guess my, my fi- parting question will be, you know, what one piece of advice would you give to maybe look, people starting out in their legal journey or people going through their current legal journey at, at, at the moment? I think two, I think there's one skill aspect and then the, the other um, sort of a softer skill, right? So, so the first thing I would say is that as a new lawyer in particular, it's important to really focus on, on the skills that you are becoming the best you can be and really excellent at your practice area. But I would amend that because a lot of people will say, oh, just do that, that's enough. I would amend that to say, you have to do that, but you also should be considering uh, your relationships and 
long-term because if you want to have independence to have a portable practice and to have frankly a lot more fun in law practice, you really need to have clients. That's a very long game. So if you just start thinking about being active outside of your law firm or your practice group, you know, right before you're up for partner, you know, 10 years out, you're behind the game. So I think balancing the excellence in practice with also considering relationship building, I wouldn't say necessarily business development, but relationship building, um, you know, even in law school and beyond that. Yeah, and that's really great advice. Um, I think that's something also now with the level of platforms that are available, it becomes um, a lot easier in certain respects to form those relationships, particularly in the online digital world that we're in. So yeah, really, really love that piece of advice. And I'm sure MC, a lot of people are going to be very intrigued and want to know more about you following today. So if people want to follow or get in touch with you about anything we've discussed, which is the best platform for them to do that? And feel free to shout out any web links or relevant social media, which we'll also share with this episode for you. Sure. So the best way to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn, as you know, and um, and also on my uh, law firm's website, buckhalter.com. And also for the book and merchandise publishing side, that's um, motherspotsfortheday.com. Brilliant. Well, thanks an absolute million, MC. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show, listening to your journey. Truly, truly inspiring. So wishing you lots of continued success. But from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, for now, over and out. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Legally Speaking podcast. If you enjoyed the show and want to help support us, remember to leave us a rating and review on Apple iTunes. You can also support the show and gain exclusive benefits, bonus content, and much more by signing up to our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Legally Speaking podcast. Thanks for listening.